O heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of blessings, giver of life, come abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls. Amen. Well, so part of this is to say is it's just really odd to do this in front of people that are not strangers. <laughs> strangers are easier. So, in an odd way. Well, the story uh, of human beings as it opens up in the pages of Genesis begins actually with a very striking interior view. Uh, there's the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's the commandment that they've been given regarding the trees. And there's the transgression, the eating of the forbidden fruit. And then suddenly, the interior view begins. And if you've read much about in, in ancient writings, uh, like in, you know, Genesis is really, really ancient compared to, say, the New Testament. Uh, this is actually unusual to get much at all about what's going on inside somebody. And so it says then in Genesis in chapter 3, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So we go from these external bits of the story to suddenly going inside Adam, hearing what's going on inside him, what's going on inside Eve there. Their eyes are open, they see they're naked, and they, they hide. So the interior glimpse of a man and a woman really is the story of shame. Um, and so, if you will, the biblical story of human beings begins in paradise and immediately moves from there to shame. They saw that they were naked and they hid themselves. We're wired for lots of stuff. We're wired for hunger. And when somebody says they're hungry, uh, we don't tell them they shouldn't feel that way. Uh, we respect it when somebody says they're hungry. Uh, we're wired for pain, for touch, for sight, for hearing. All of our various senses uh, are hardwired. hardwired. Unsurprisingly, we're also wired for human emotions and relationships. That's not surprising either. That's, we're, we're wired for these things. Uh, one clinical theorist uh, has described shame as the master emotion. Uh, it's interesting, when I started just doing research and study on shame, I got interested uh, and found books that were talking about it uh, in terms of its, its neurobiological basis, like the reactions your body has. Uh, and in fact, it was really surprising to discover, uh, you know, in research there, about even infants uh, have, will have, can exhibit shame emotions. I've used this illustration, it may have been with some of you. Uh, mother comes up holding a baby toddler in her arms for communion, and you know, and mama presents the baby, the priest comes at him with the spoon, the baby shrieks, turns her face away, hides it, and her mom, mama's feeling embarrassed, the priest is feeling some chagrin, and they're both trying to convince the baby to do this. What actually is going on is the baby feels vulnerable. 
mean, I don't know about you, but some strange guy with a beard coming at you trying to stick something in your face, you would feel vulnerable too. And that feeling of vulnerability, the feeling of exposure, is actually the, the, the biological basis, the biological trigger that later gets tied up in the more complicated memories and things that comes out as the, the emotion of shame. So I, I've kind of learned as I was studying this over the years that, you know, people come in and they've got these kids and they want to present them to the priest and they want the kids to behave really well and the kids are in fact grabbing mother, burying themselves and, and misbehaving in a way that the mother's feeling embarrassed because why is this child acting like this in front of the priest? Well, they're acting like that because of shame. And uh, when someone is reacting you know, like a child is acting in a shame position, they shouldn't then be forced I mean, like any more than you want to be forced to come out of a, a hidden protective position to suddenly, no, no, that bear won't hurt you. <laughs> no, you, the instinct is a God-given instinct. We're hardwired for it. That I found a really helpful thought when I first just started thinking and dealing about shame. I mean, because I, I got there through a lot of issues in my own life uh, and needing to deal with it, but it was... You know, at the very time I was dealing with it, I was also dealing with some really profound healing from a uh, an anxiety panic disorder I had. I found it in I start that started in my life when I was 19 years old, and you know, I met Beth around the same time. They weren't connected, um, <laughs> uh, other than the fact that she tolerated me and loved me despite my anxiety and panic, which is how I knew I needed to marry her. Uh, because this was going to be a lot of my life. Um, well, that wasn't the only reason. But uh, it, I can remember like going to an ER, having a terrible panic attack, you know, here in the early 70s, and they didn't even have the word panic. It just wasn't part of the psychological vocabulary of things. And so you, I was getting misdiagnosed and labeled a lot of things. I spent a week in a, the local mental hospital in, in, in my college town and, and it, it, it totally useless, useless had me way on the wrong meds. Beth came to visit me and just thought they had zombied me, which they had. And, and she fasted for a couple of days to get me out. And then uh, the angels uh, came and loosed my chains, and uh, I signed myself out. Uh, and knowing that that was not the answer, uh, was much more helpful later to discover that a panic attack is simply a massive release of adrenaline uh, set off by any number of things. I mean, it's, it's literally physical, and it's actually a really good thing if you're in a cave with a saber-toothed tiger. I mean, the adrenaline is called fight or flight, and I don't know about you, but with saber-toothed tigers, I fly. You know, I've never fought one in one. So, I mean, and that's useful. You need, I mean, an adrenaline storm can help you pick that Buick up off your aunt that, you know, that fell down on her. She was under there changing the oil or something. And so, they, uh, I mean, but I found it very helpful to understand the biology underneath what was going on in my body instead of, I mean, a, a lot of people come in, and I've, I've done this over the years as a priest, they'll come in for counseling. Lots of times they'll come to a priest because they think it's cheaper than a psychologist. And, uh, or 
better yet, and I love this, and they'll tell me, no, it's not psychological, it's spiritual. There's not a dividing line. I mean, it doesn't just, we don't come in little packages like that. Um, and if someone's describing something that has a huge physical component to it, I'm really one of the first priests who will say, you need to go talk to your doctor if you've got a good one. You know, or sometimes you may need to go see a therapist or something in addition to coming to confession. Or, you know, this what's going on can be a very complex thing going on in your life. And because I can remember having Pentecostals gathered around me when I was in college and having these panic attacks and spending an evening as they sought to cast out my demons. You know, it was not effective. Uh, demons are not panic attacks. It's an adrenaline storm. And I wish you could cast out adrenaline. Uh, but no, it doesn't work that way. Same thing's true with shame. People will think of shame then as like this emotion or this spiritual thing, and it's actually, it can be much more complex than that, included being uh, uh, wired in your body so that, and it gets very complicated, uh, but it, at its basis, it's, I mean, I've had people tell me that, oh, there wasn't any shame until we sinned. Shame is a product of sin. I'm thinking, no, it's not. Any more than, unless you say hunger is a product of sin, uh, pain is a product of sin. I mean, in other words, pretty well all the biological functions of our body that we know about, uh, they're not products of sin. We were built that way uh, and, and for life on this planet. And uh, shame is also useful and helpful when it's healthy. And I'll touch on that. So um, we're wired for it. It's a key, perhaps even the shame is perhaps the key component in our wearing that tells us essential things about our relations with other people. It doesn't tell us everything, but as one theorist calls it, the master emotion, you, almost, you don't know it, but you probably check in with shame before you do any of your other emotions. It's an interesting thing. Uh, Shame doesn't tell me the fact that I'm naked. Shame tells me how I feel about being seen as naked by someone else. Kind of depends on the setting. <laughs> you know, I have one chapter in the book where I talk about being naked on Main Street in Campsville, Illinois, which was its own story. You'll have to read the book to get to that chapter. But uh, it was totally innocent, I assure you, um, and an accident of saving my life. But uh, nonetheless, it was embarrassing. Um, but naked is both about our bodies, but metaphorically about lots of other things. Uh, shame uh, is experienced, uh, for instance, uh, disappointed expectations can provoke shame. Uh, you were excited uh, to meet her, and she seemed unexcited to meet you. You'll feel slightly awkward and embarrassed. Uh, the uh, unwanted exposure like you were not expecting that and suddenly I mean some people just to have a spotlight on them in any way is just more than they can bear you know they don't want to be up front um, humiliation even very light humiliation uh, the sense of being uh, unworthy or simply self-conscious um, all of them are part of the shame family of emotions I mean at its root um, at, at its root, shame it, it is essentially a feeling of vulnerability and exposure. 
but we're complex emotional critters, and that can become uh, be triggered by lots and lots of different, very complex situations. Uh, but uh, if you've ever been, and there are plenty of people, uh, sort of somewhere on the spectrum, as they say, uh, who do not pick up, uh, read emotions very well. And so very often they'll find themselves, you know, and we may describe them as socially awkward uh, because they're not picking up all these things, signals that you and I are picking up on that tell us, don't say that, okay? They do say it because they don't read that. But the whole, you know, if we're gathering together and I pour you all cocktails and we're just meal, milling about, having a nice little evening, we're also at the same time all reading each other and reading the, sit, reading the situation. Uh, I laughed uh, years ago when I was serving in Durham, North Carolina, uh, in, in this really, really rich church. Uh, it became the season of the engagement parties. And I went off one evening to an engagement party, left Beth at home, and I came back for the party and said to her, the only time I've ever said it in our married life, I said, sweetie, you don't have a thing to wear. I mean, because it's one of the questions, it's like you go and you come back and you tell me what do they wear? You know, she could come with me to the next one, but I was thinking, we don't have that kind of money, and you don't want to be, you'll be embarrassed. So I'll just go cover for us. But you know, we read that. How, is, it, is it okay, you know? We, over the years, priest here at St. Anne, the number of times I've gotten a phone call, not say asking just simply what time's the liturgy on Sunday, but particularly if it's a woman, what do they wear? It's a legitimate question, and women are much more sensitive to that in our culture than men are. What do they wear? They'll have watched a few YouTube videos, and they want to know, do I have to cover my head? You know, do, how long should I, do I have to wear a long skirt? You know, all kinds of questions that way. Not because they're terribly concerned about the religious questions of that, just I don't want to show up and look different from everybody. It's a shame question. Not that they would, you know, think, oh, but some people are more sensitive about that than others. We want to know these things. It's the master emotion. We check in with it to find out. And if it's absent, then awkward situations uh, happen. Um, if for everyone else, if not for them. At a certain level, shame is the signal, a body emotional signal, that represents a break in communion with others around us. Uh, and in that way, it especially can serve as signals that are important information. You may not be able to tell why that communion is, is absent or is broken, but you've got something telling you that it's not right, that it's not working, this awkwardness. I, I relate in the book, the first time I met Father Tom Hopko, I was at St. Vladimir's Seminary, I'm excited. He had been important to me in many ways. You know, and he's standing there talking with somebody else. I was actually by then uh, ordained as an Orthodox priest, so I've got my cassock on, and I'm wanting to meet him, and I am absolutely frozen in shame. I feel awkward for the fact that I hadn't gone to an Orthodox seminary, awkward for the fact that I hadn't gone to his Orthodox seminary, uh, awkward for the fact that I'd come in that way, so I'm feel, I was feeling self-conscious uh, as a convert, and I just, I just don't know how I'm going to be received. Uh, I, I wasn't really nicely received by some portion of my neighboring Greeks, 
But when we first started St. Anne, it was just its own story. They got over it. And uh, I've been here longer than about a half dozen of their priests so over the years. Yeah, every time they were in between priests, I got called on to go to their hospitals and do their funerals and stuff that way. And so after a while, just, oh, that's old Father Stephen over at St. Anne. And uh, it wasn't that way to start with. But I was very, very uh, uncomfortable. And, and I wound up not being able to say anything to Father Tom. I just, and just backed away. I, I didn't know what to say. I mostly only felt like I could say something stupid. So I didn't say anything at all, and I didn't mean it. The next time, the first time I actually did have a conversation with him, I was the speaker at a conference at St. Tecon Seminary, and, and I had him rolling in the aisles. I was there telling jokes and stuff, and doing this, what I thought was a pretty darn good talk. And when it finished, Father Tom makes this beeline up. He was in the audience the year before. He had been a speaker. This time he's in the audience, makes a beeline straight up to me. And he just starts praising the talk and saying nice things to me. And I, you know, I'm just about as happy as can be. And it's just the opposite of the few years before. And I said to him, well, Father Tom, you really should like that talk. And he said, why? I said, well, I've been going up and down I-75 week in, week out, taking care of three missions, and the whole time I'm on the road, I'm either listening to you or Metropolitan Callisto's Ware uh, on CD in my car. I said, so this is your theology, my jokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, and that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, Shame, though, just an awkward Thing and you, something I really wanted to do, someone I really wanted to meet, someone whom I really wanted to know, someone whom I really wanted to know me, and I couldn't do it. You know, and I'm a pretty gregarious kind of guy, but I couldn't do it. Um, that one mattered too much. Um, a very simple description of shame, it oversimplifies it, but it's still useful, is how I feel about who I am. Not how I feel about what I've done, but how I feel about who I am. Uh, and that being the case, shame not only represents alienation or broken communion from others, it can also represent alienation and broken communion from yourself. When I was in high school, we had two very distinctive economic classes. There were the white-collar kids whose daddies had college degrees and nice fancy college, you know, jobs like that. And then there was my side of the tracks that were blue-collar people, and, it, and the distinction was very strong, more than it is today, I might add, uh, but it was very strong. And I, I can remember just being embarrassed to say that my father was an auto mechanic, and try to find ways to say it nicer or sound like it was more important than it was. You know, it, it, it just, you know, it is what it was. You know, and when Dad would show up, you know, to a school event, you know. I hadn't seen him with clean hands. I mean, he could wash them and wash them and wash them. And he had Chevrolet under his fingernails. He had Ford all over. I mean, he was just, that's how he was. I, I honor him now. I feel so very different about it. Uh, but then uh, it was, you know, the awkwardness of life in middle school, high school. I've usually described life in middle school as one unmitigated shame pit. Uh, if you don't know how you feel about who you are because you don't know who you are, which is why lots and lots of middle school and high school kids uh, are very concerned about identity and wind up 
uh, playing with, adopting, assuming they've got all kinds of identities. And they don't even, they don't know who they are, but if this identity provides belonging and protection, then it can feel right, because uh, the other is just so dangerous. So it's so dangerous. I remember <laughs> eighth grade dance, first one we'd had at our school, and we'd go, and they're in the gym, and there's a band, and the band is playing, and there's boys down one side of the gym, and there's girls down the other side of the gym. And, and I can tell you, from the boys' perspective, I really, really, really wanted to dance with several of those girls, maybe even half of them. Uh, you know, and I mean, what's not to like? You know, I have no idea what was in their mind. I, you know, we, but, you know, and it was, it, it eventually, Someone drug a couple of them out on the floor, but you needed somebody else to go out there first. There was no way I was going out first and be watched by everybody. Some couple of brace souls go out there. It's just shame. And I, when I, my, driving my oldest daughter to her first dance over at Jefferson Middle School, we're driving up, my sweet, sweet Mary, and we're pulling up to the school, and she says, Papa, she said, if a boy asked me to dance, am I allowed to? <laughs> uh, oops, I've raised them a little too strictly. <laughs> yes, dear, you may dance. Uh, anyway, you may not enjoy it. But, no. <laughs> uh, but shame can represent breaking communion from yourself. I mean, you, how do you feel about who you are? Well, there I am in high school feeling embarrassed about what my daddy did. I mean, that's like broken communion from who I am because I was who I was. My daddy was who he was. And if I couldn't love my daddy and honor him for what he's doing, it means I don't feel good about me. If I, you know, and if I'm not at peace and good about me, why should I expect anybody else to be? You know, so this break in communion with the self you know, is, is uh, probably the deeper uh, wound of shame than the break, how it breaks communion with others. You know, I got a phone call. We were in the storefront at St. Anne's. I got a phone call one day from one of my classmates in high school. Called me up. It was the year I turned 50 years old. And they were going to have a 50th birthday reunion for my high school class back home. And, you know, and he said uh, we were divided it up, some of us on the committee. He said, and I saw your name, so I said, I'll call him. And uh, he called me because he was the last guy to beat me up which is its own nasty story in high school, how that happened, that I got beat up one day out in the smoking area. We had smoking areas in high school. And, uh, but he did, and it's really interesting. He said, uh, I wanted to call you because I wanted to ask you forgiveness. And it turns out, since then, he had become a Christian, and apparently a decent Christian, since he grasped the concept of forgiveness and asking it, uh, how few Christians get that one. Uh, and I'm talking with him on the phone and I'm weeping and he's weeping and we're talking and I thought, boy, if we're going to get together as a high school class and forgive each other, there's no way I'm missing that party. You know, and it was interesting as we've gotten older and, you know, I don't know if we're going to have a 70th birthday party this year or not. I hadn't heard. Uh, but we're all turning 70. Mostly we keep looking for, you know, who died next. But, you know, we get together now, and there's just no, none of the nonsense of high school feelings. We're just glad to be together and alive and see each other's grandkid pictures or whatever else is going on. And, 
you know. I remember one of my classmates showing up, one of the early things, and things had changed in his life. He'd done really well in college, and he'd come out as gay, and stuff like that, which I just suddenly thought, my God, that explains so much about you that I didn't know in high school and would have just scratched my head over. But I'm glad at least he got to a place where he could get together with all of us and tell about his story and not be afraid of us. You know, because he had to be who he was or what he was feeling, you know. And uh, even that, uh, if he can do that, I can talk about my mechanic, Eddie. Um, how I feel about who I am. Shame is also described sometimes as the unbearable emotion. It's painful and uncomfortable. As I say, it makes us want to hide. We'll say things like, it made my skin crawl. I could have fallen through the floor. I mean, all kinds of things we say to express a feeling that way when we experience it. And very often, shame is, because it's so unbearable, it's almost immediately morphed into generally into anger or sadness. When we say she made me angry, it probably means she shamed me. And if you've been doing anger for several days, because anger is a healthy emotion, a gift from God, it has a useful purpose. Uh, a useful purpose is actually to make us act and act very quickly with a great deal of strength. Uh, they say sometimes like writing an injustice and immediately acting on it. But if you've been burning with anger for days, you very likely have something like an unresolved issue with shame that needs to be attended to. Because normally anger is quick and over. And if it's going on day after day, you know. In our culture, the modern culture, shame has become a common form of speech. Uh, the political uh, world, both parties, uh, speaks in very brazen terms of shame that would never ever have been spoken uh, I mean I mean well say the 19th century would have they were just <laughs> the 19th century was a pretty shaming century too but recently uh, it's become so and so that you don't just disagree with someone there's stories of marriages breaking up over politics you know plenty of it uh, or people dreading Thanksgiving and getting together with you know relatives who differ over things that way, and it's uh, which is one of the reasons why we have measurably become a more angry people than in almost any time in our history. Really, really angry, and that is because shame is an interesting thing. It's not just about me, but you doing shameful things and saying shameful things actually provokes shame in me too. You might see somebody, you know, walking down the street, you know doing, say, a pride parade, and you're just boiling. Well, it's your shame that's doing it. It provokes it. And in some ways, a lot of public protest-type activity uh, is intended, it tends to provoke shame. It's, it's one of the easier, stronger reactions to get from people. It, it, but it does polarize. I might add, by the way, that most comedians in the American genre of comedy uh, use shame as part of their act. You tell a shameful story, then you relieve it. Sh uh, laughter uh, laughter uh, makes the emotion or the body tensions of shame relax. And so we do that. It kind of grows out of the Borscht Belt uh, comedy of in the, back in the you know, New York, back earlier times. Um, British humor 
was much more like uh, slapstick, earlier American. These other things where it played games with shame. Um, but because shame is an experience of broken communion, we can easily understand how it's bound up with our experiences of sin. Um, shame is not a punishment for sin. Uh, that would be a terrible thing for God to do to us, to punish us with shame. He doesn't punish Adam and Eve with shame. In fact, God changes the conversation with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, Adam says, we heard you coming, and we were naked, so we hid. And then God says to him, who told you you were naked? You know? You know did, and then changes the conversation, who told you you were naked? So he doesn't get into the shame thing. Instead, he said, did you eat what I told you not to eat? Which actually is a change in the conversation from shame to guilt. Guilt is how you feel about what you did. They did something wrong, and if you will, he brings them back to the objective question. Not how are you feeling about it, but did you do it? And they said, yes, we did. And, the, and he deals with that, and there are consequences of that. As he had told them, the day you eat of it, you will die. You can't live here anymore. But this place, paradise, is not a place for death. That's in this world. And so they pass from that world into this world. Um, but it's interesting, as he sends them forth into this world, they had tried to do something with some paradise fig leaves, which must have been really remarkable, I'm sure, as fig leaves go. Uh, but uh, that's not how he sends them out. It says he made them garments of skin. I've always thought of those as like Flintstone outfits. But uh, now the fathers have done wonderful commentaries on the garments of skin. I mean, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, Origen, who was sort of a heretic in the early church, I mean, he kind of has us falling into these earthly skin bodies. I mean, we were something else before. Uh, of course, Origen also in paradise, or heaven, has us floating around as spiritual spheres. And that would answer those weight questions you have. You know, that <laughs> we're all going to be shaped as spheres and just sort of bumping into one another. Heaven. I don't know. Um, there's some of his ideas, as I say, were condemned as heretical. Hopefully that was one of them. <laughs> I don't want to go to heaven and be spherical. Um, <laughs> strange. But the, um, he sends them forth. He covers their shame. He covers their shame. They have not been able to do it. He does it. He provides them garments of skin. As I say, the fathers do some commentary on that. A lot of the fathers will use the, the garments of skin as a metaphor for all the various forms of protection God has built into our world. Even things like culture and other things that kind of help give us a certain kind of guidance. They're not paradise and they're not heaven, but they will keep you safer than if you had nothing. They protect us. Um, you know, we get crazy with clothing. As in, we, you know, we overdo it, we underdo it, we do all kinds of things with it, but it is uh, something of a protection with our shame. At some point, I get a question from somebody about what about shamelessness, which is also uh, is just one of the many uh, strategies that people have of dealing with shame. Uh, there's a lot of, we'll get into toxic shame in just a minute, and that's one of the things that... Uh, it's often bound up with toxic shame. Um, but there's a verse from the wisdom of Sirach, uh, which is in the Orthodox Old Testament, not in the Protestant one. But there's a verse there that says, 
For there is a shame that brings sin, and there is a shame which is glory and grace. Interesting. So Sirach recognizes two kinds of shame. A shame that brings sin. That's, it, that is, it makes it all worse. And there's a shame that is glory and grace. Uh, this notes the fact that shame is not singular. Uh, modern clinical studies on shame make a distinction between what is called healthy shame and toxic shame. I've had some questions uh, over the last few years as I've traveled and spoken on shame uh, about the writings of Brene Brown, who's probably the most popular uh, contemporary writer on shame. And uh, from what little I've read in conversations I've had with others, I've gathered that she tends to use shame only for what I would call toxic shame. That is bad, bad stuff. The problem is, is it demonizes the word shame. Whereas earlier clinical writings made the proper distinction between healthy shame, because you've got to have it. That's like infants have it. There's nothing wrong with a child, you know, acting to protect themselves. But she will then, for what I'm calling healthy shame, will use a term like vulnerability, whatever. And I can understand the strategies she's, she was using to do that. But uh, back in the ooh, 80s or so, uh, John Bradshaw uh, wrote probably the most important book, at least especially the first edition, uh, on shame called um, Healing uh, the Shame that Binds Us. And uh, it, it, as later editions have gone on, he's gotten progressively more woke. And, you know, and, and in, in, in a way, I, the latest one I looked at, some of the chapters in it, he's like, he's, he's saying what's accepted in a certain corner of his profession, but I found it unhelpful in that it, it doesn't help you navigate what's actually going on. And that's not helpful. Uh, it, nobody gets exempt from shame. Uh, and so, but if, so if you ever have a chance and you're, say, wandering around a, uh, a used book place over in Knoxville and you come across a copy of Bradshaw's Healing the Shame That Binds Us, if you look at it and it's like an early edition, it's worth getting. Um, but he came out, and it's really interesting that psychology didn't deal, I mean, Jung and Freud have almost nothing to say about shame. The master emotion, and neither of them talk about it. It's hardly there. Uh, a fellow who began doing studies on it, uh, Sylvan Tompkins, uh, who wrote about the biology of it in what he called affect theory, looking at the nine bodily affects, he was a Freudian, and he almost got thrown out of his first conference where he did a paper on shame, and they were like, ah, this is all, you know, shame is just about, you know, how you feel about your mother, or something like that, it's Freud, you know. And so he got in trouble for talking about this, but he was on sabbatical from Harvard or wherever it was he was teaching, and they just had a child, and he's watching this child over this year, and just watching these early emotions in this child and kind of noticing, hey, that's shame. Or that's whatever. We have these nine ways we present our, our faces, our affect, and, and how we seem that way. It's interesting that shame is exhibited primarily in the face, and we experience it in the face. You blush. You not only blush, but you want to hide your eyes. You look down. You're in a piano concert. You know, I say concert. Piano recital difference. <laughs> you know, and the kid is up there playing the piano, right? And because I've been that kid and forgot where they were. 
and suddenly the, it stops. And what's interesting is if you could look at the audience, nobody is looking at them. They're all staring at their feet, right? The kid is feeling shame because it's very exposed to be suddenly in front of a crowd of people and forget where you are, you know, like in the song, and it's embarrassing. Uh, but everybody out there feels embarrassed too, which is really weird. But I've used the term to say that shame is a sticky emotion. Uh, if I have it, you'll feel it too, which is a very interesting social phenomenon about how not just I am privately wired, but how everybody around me is wired. You know, if I start acting in a shameful manner, you'll find it embarrassing. You know, and you'll probably want to leave because uh, it doesn't feel good. Or you might get angry and then later feel depressed. But um, modern clinical studies uh, make this distinction between healthy shame and toxic shame. Healthy shame is simply the signal uh, that gives us the information, even though it's unpleasant. I mean, hunger is unpleasant too, for that matter, but shame, pain is unpleasant. Shame, as a signal that gives me information, uh, is very useful uh, in a variety of ways. It tells me things that I can't find out. You know, I need, I need to know. Uh, and it's like emotional antenna and giving me some of my earliest signals so I can pay attention. Toxic shame, though, is usually the result of trauma or abuse. Um, though both trauma and abuse can be very subtle and unrecognized, it can be as subtle like emotional abuse, simply how the kind how a person... I knew a woman who had experienced extreme trauma as a child. She had watched her father kill her mother when she was four years old. That's trauma. She was adopted by an aunt who was probably no better uh, than what she had been raised by. And she said the aunt was frequently saying to her, you should have been an abortion. Well, you know, that's, you know, if you don't come out of that without toxic shame and a boatload of it, you know. When I met her, uh, she was a witch. And I was listening to her talk about all of that and I thought, Based on your experiences, you had to do something. And probably not being a Christian like your aunt was, you know, you're not going to do that. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're just trying to take care of yourself. We can start with that in a conversation. If I recognize that what's going on is you found a pretty sick way to take care of yourself, but I'm not surprised. You know, and you, you just don't freak over it. Uh, this was another way of actually her saying, you religious people, stay away from me. I've had enough of you. One of them killed my mother, and the other one thinks I should be an abortion. Right? So, uh, totally understandable. And you have to bear these things in mind. I mean, it was like that little saying, no one knows who said it, that said, you know, be kind. Everyone you meet uh, is going through a, a difficult struggle. Uh, I don't know who said it. I've seen it attributed, but it's not that. But it's a good saying. Uh, it's true, and, you, uh, and we rarely get to know the depths of what's really going on in someone else. Jesus did, did know, and we see it again and again as he has these conversations that we only get the, ice, the tip of the iceberg part of the conversation. And yet Jesus, you know, he's just reaching down in a wonderful conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. We get some ideas of it there where he's, you know, 
you know, yeah, you had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. I mean, she's got some, you know, she's got some issues, uh, needless to say, and he knows them all. And he is no doubt godlike walking between the eggshells until he gets to the right one and then he just steps on it. That's it. Now, when you have not your husband now, that's talk, you know, and there's just this, he knows how to do that as, as, as our creator. He knows how to do that. But toxic shame, these wounds we have, uh, toxic shame uh, can, it, it often leaves a lasting wound. Uh, and because it's lasting, it even uh, often has a way of altering the personality. We act out in a whole variety of ways we act out to not feel the shame. And, um, and so our lives uh, slowly become shaped and defined by shame. I mean, the number of times I've seen this, especially, you know, I've, I've seen it in young people, but I've seen it as a confessor and meeting people through the years, and there's just things going on, and, and especially over these last 10 years that I've been kind of preoccupied with this, um, I'm seeing things happening, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what the toxic shame wounds are in your life. I just know they're there. Because you are prickly. You are, I mean, your behavior, like the, the, the witch, was, that was a really big prickly. Uh, but it can be much more subtle than that. Um, someone who wants to fight, even. I remember the, I was playing guitar at a coffee house in my hometown, I'm in my senior year of high school, and you got to know Greenville, South Carolina, is where Bob Jones University is, and you know, and we also like Holmes Theological College, which was a Pentecostal uh, version, somewhat to the right of Bob Jones, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and they kind of did. They swapped off duties. So you caught the bus to go downtown, which was common when I was a kid. You had to catch the bus home. And which the bus stop was the front of the dollar store, and that's where they preached on Saturdays, taking kind of tag team matches. Oh mercy, guilt, shame, guilt, shame. Oh boy, and uh, I had long hair by then, and uh, rednecks did not have long hair in, in 1970, uh, but. There's that verse in Corinthians, does not even nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to wear long hair? And, um, and I thought they probably meant like below your waist, but uh, <laughs> mine was merely below my shoulders. But it apparently was a really inviting opening line from any of those preachers. I mean, it's like looking at me and thinking, he's not saved. He was. He wouldn't be wearing his hair like that. And off they'd go on it like that. So I was a pretty touchy guy. So I'm playing guitar in this coffee house one night, and I finished my set, and I'm back in the kitchen getting my teeth. And uh, this turns out that Jesus Freak from uh, Furman University comes in, and a uh, very happy face, sweet kind of guy. And he says to me, Do you know Jesus? Which was a lot like saying, Sick him to a dog at that point in my life. And I'm just. Oh man, I'm ready. Do I know Jesus? You want to you fight? I mean, it's like. And actually, at the time, I was really, really prickly. And I said to him, just kind of where I was at the time, this is 1970, 
I got a brother in Vietnam and a few other things like that going on. And I, besides being liable to the draft myself, and I had become, through reading Tolstoy, I'd become a pacifist. And I, my challenge was, is if you're serious about Jesus, what do you think about violence? You know what I mean? It's like, uh, and I asked him about pacifism. Because if he wasn't, then as far as I was concerned, he hadn't read the Sermon on the Mount, and he hadn't taken Jesus seriously. That's where I was then. I'm a priest now. I'm more subtle. But that's what I fired off at him. And just sweet Jesus freak that he was, he smiled and just, you know, met me with a gentle answer. And I wound up going to a prayer meeting with him that night and, you know, uh, getting baptized in the Holy Ghost and a whole lot of just great things got flowed out of that. Uh, but I was pretty toxic at the time. And, uh, you know, I'd seen enough insanity in the name of Jesus to be pretty wary and toxic about anybody wanting to talk to me about him that I hadn't asked a question of first. Um, and so, you know, I get that as well. You know, if I'm out walking around in my cassock, this is, this is like a, a do you know Jesus uh, signboard without even having to say it. And it can provoke uh, attacks and various things. And it's not exactly their fault, but it's toxic shame. Um, Many, many things in our life that uh, are examples of toxic shame. As the years have gone by, um, as years have gone by, I have tended to think that toxic shame is much more common than I first thought. I just thought it, it was something that belonged to people who could talk about abuse uh, and trauma in their childhood, which was certainly true of me. So I got to my toxicity, but it, it can happen any number of ways. Uh, trauma can happen anytime. And uh, I've had traumatizing experiences uh, as a priest. I mean, not here necessarily at St. Anne. Early in my priesthood, having someone sitting in my office telling me they want to kill me and meaning it, it'll traumatize you. You know, it'll traumatize you. It just does stuff to you. Uh, you know, other kinds of things that you put yourself, uh, I think first responders, Constantly seeing, uh, dealing with people in accidents and domestic things or whatever. I mean, they, soldiers, you just come back. Why do soldiers have PTSD? Because they're human. Do they all have PTSD? I tend to think if they saw action, they do. Even if it's not so bad that they say they need help. Uh, but it's much more common in our life. Very often, it plays out, though, like toxic shame in which it's forming and shaping our personality. Strategies in a life say like perfectionism. Where, and it's not just that you like to do things right, it's that you must do them right. And even the sense that if I don't do it right, bad things will happen. And it becomes like this drive that I need to control it. And you know, it can be, it can just, it can take us over in which it torments us more than we're tormenting everybody around us. But it happens. Many, many kind of things can do. Uh, people can be just painfully shy so much that they can't bear it themselves. They wish they could go out. They wish they could mingle. And yet they find they can't. There's, there's just unattended things that are going on. And we should all feel very compassionate towards one another. Everybody you know is doing some struggle. It just comes out differently. In my book, I want to note, it's not entitled Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Shame. It ain't that book, okay? Uh, it's not a clinical book, though it does have a little clinical information in it. But instead, the subtitle of it points to its real purpose, 
knowing God beyond our shame. Uh, shame has a way of blocking us. I mean, and, and it sure comes into the spiritual life uh, in which uh, just sometimes even the thought of God provokes shame. Um, St. Gregory of Nyssa described the soul as a mirror uh, and is the mirror in which he says that we see the face of Christ and this mirror of the soul. St. Paul uses something of the same imagery in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, where he says we see the face of Christ as though seeing something through a mirror darkly, like a, a dirty mirror. Well, St. Gregory says the mirror is dirty too, but he also thinks that this is the process of our Christian life, is cleaning the mirror. You know, I mean, what am I doing when I go to confession? Well, I'm cleaning some ground I got there this week. Because what's the purpose of this? Well, God's not a lawyer. So he's not looking and thinking, oh, he did something wrong, he'd better repent from that or I'll punish him. I mean, no, it's not working like that. It, the purpose of our Christian life is to know God. Jesus says this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the purpose of the spiritual life, is to know God, to know him in the truth. And this is like know in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense, they'll say, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she brought forth a son. It's a very profound image. And so to know God is to have communion with him. That, as Jesus will say about communion, whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. This is the kind of knowledge, of, or a participation in communion knowledge that God wants us to uh, to have. This is what in our orthodox parts we call mystical theology. I want to know him, but not as an external thing, but in me. I want to know God in me. Paul will write in Colossians and say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so uh, the state of your mirror matters in this journey of knowing God. Uh, so in this mirror, the soul that I have in mind, when I think about knowing God beyond our shame, there's nothing that darkens and distorts uh, the mirror of the soul as powerfully as shame. Indeed, in that shame represents a breaking of communion even with the self, even if it's just on an emotional level, it darkens that reality within us so that I'm not comfortable in my own skin. You know, I don't feel okay about who I am. That's pretty, you know kind of hard to relax if, if that's how you're feeling. You don't like who you are, uh, or you feel that who you are is worthless, or who you are is stained and dirty, or who you are, you know, I mean, all of these things that are there. And it may very well be, I might add, that you know, some, everyone from your mother, your great aunt Tilly, uh, to some priest or preacher somewhere along the line has reinforced that and told you these things. It's one of the reasons I really, I hate Calvinism with a passion. I mean, with a passion. I mean, I really probably shouldn't feel as badly about it as I do, but I do because it preaches this stuff as though it were the gospel, that you are in fact worthless and that there's nothing you can do about it. You know, you're just worthless. And I think, boy, that's just, that's just not, that's not, who, that's not who God is. That's not the God who became one of us uh, and, and died for us. That is not the gospel message. It's been condemned by the Orthodox Church. It is formally a heresy. Uh, we actually had a patriarch of Constantinople 
in the 1500s become, I guess maybe 16, one of their, become a Calvinist. He'd studied in Geneva, surprise, surprise, and he came back with some Calvinist ideas, and he starts passing them off in his orthodoxy, and he actually had a council and condemned it uh, formally. You know, things like double-edged predestination, heresy, not an option, no. Nobody is predestined to hell. Wrong, right. Uh, things like, I mean, what kind of God would do a thing like that? Um, but think for a minute, uh, or listen with me for a minute, to the kind of self-talk that a lot of us have to endure day in and day out. Um, we berate ourselves. I Meaning it's actually worth paying attention to the kind of things you say to yourself when you're doing that. Um, we fuss at ourselves, we judge ourselves, and the condemnations can be terrible. You know, we'll say things like, stupid. That's one of my favorite ones. Uh, I mean, that's something, I mean, I feel things, my mind will wander back and I'll remember some things that I've done or whatever like that, and I just, suddenly I'm saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. Well, you know, it doesn't help. You know, he just grinds it in. He's like, I knew I was stupid. You know, just grinds it in. And, you know, and, and the, the way we can react to that to this toxic stuff we're carrying. And as I say, we can wind up acting out and, and uh, you know, I mean, for instance, I couldn't talk with Father Tom Alka. Why? Well, because I just was, had too much toxic crap in my life to bear the idea that it might be embarrassing if I did, that the greeting would be less than warm, that he would treat me like the stranger he had never heard of. When in fact, I wanted to be greeted the way he did the first time, or the next time he greeted me, with running up and telling me how wonderful I am. Oh, thank you. You recognize it too, huh? <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you haven't given me enough time to build a reputation. You know, we, which is part of our own toxic stuff we carry with us. And you, uh, when I was in seminary, even there, as bizarre as we were as Anglicans, they did pay attention to questions like, why do you want to be a priest? There's as many toxic reasons to want to be a priest as there are good ones. You know? um, first off, it's nice to appear in public and people think well of you. I graduated seminary. I was ordained as an Episcopal priest. My older brother said to me, Stephen, how does it feel to have the most socially accepted job in the Southeast? <laughs> I thought about it and I thought, yeah, you're right, aren't you? You know, I can... I can go anywhere and pass for white. Uh, so, sorry, it's an old joke. Um, but most importantly, though, shame can settle within the soul and distort and darken how we see Christ as well as how we see the self. Um, you know, a lot of times people even even get upset if you're saying positive things. You know that God loves you and that you have value and things and. People get upset because there's this very affirming kind of thoughts in public schools, and people sort of afraid that if the kids don't get, you know, berated enough, they'll grow up and be obnoxious. So they have to be told tough things. And I'm thinking, I'm still absolutely convinced that it's love that we have a lack of, um, and that just saying nice words to somebody when you don't know them or love them or mean it. Uh, it is, is just is still fraud. What they need, though, is, is actual love, true love, uh, being loved by somebody. 
uh, I had a second grade teacher who just radiated a wonderful love. And uh, I'm still my favorite teacher of all time. And, uh, but she loved us. I don't know how else to say it. Um, but it's worth noting that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are hiding from God, and it's God who comes looking for them. They didn't go looking for God, he goes looking for them. In the larger story of the gospel, this is definitively true. It is Christ who has come looking for us. Christ reveals that God is looking for us, like the, the father in the story of the prodigal son, who's obviously watching the whole time and sees the son as he's coming, sees him a, a, off a far away. He's, he's staring into the distance, waiting for his son to come down that road. And then he runs out to him. It is Christ who's come looking for us, uh, even if he has to search the deepest and darkest realms of Hades. I've long thought that, um, I mean, to me, the icon of Christ in the resurrection um, is, is just the icon of the Orthodox faith. Uh, because in my experience over the years, especially as people, I mean, people locked in their shame. Shame is a form of Hades. It just is. An emotional form of Hades. A psychological form of Hades in which we find ourselves separated even from myself. I don't even feel comfortable with me. Yuck! Who wants to live like that? You're, you know, not just basking in the warmth of your own glow. It's not like that. It's not comfortable in your own glow. You can't even see the glow. Uh, instead, Christ comes looking for me to find me in the darkest part of my hell. I mentioned earlier this experience I had of spending a week uh, in a mental hospital when I was in college. Beth knew me. She fasted for a couple of days to get me out. The answer to her prayer, I was sitting in the hallway in the hospital, minding my own business, not doing anything silly. <laughs> you kind of be careful about doing silly things when you're there. You get in real trouble. Uh, but I'm sitting there, and I can, I can talk about a darkness that I just, an emptiness I felt within me. And while I was sitting there, in my darkness, uh, a point of light. I, I saw a point of light inside me. Um, and I heard a promise from God that was a promise of healing and restoration. Then I did something silly. I started to laugh. It was not a good thing to do in a mental hospital. But I managed to get out and sign myself out that day, but I've never forgotten that voice. He came to me. I wasn't sitting there praying. He came to me and, and, and began a work that took some years. Uh, in some ways, I didn't get healed or delivered from the panic uh, and anxiety disorder that I had until I was 58 years old and was serving here when that happened. Uh, but that's another whole story. Um, St. Sophroni uh, of Essex, now a saint, uh, and teacher of Archimandrite Zacharias of Essex, who's also been very important to me personally. St. Sophroni said, the way of shame is the way of the Lord. I choked the first time I read that, and I thought, oh no. I mean, all I can imagine was some priest or monk heaping shame on people and thinking that this would somehow make them behave, and that just would be sick. But that's what I, first time I read that, the way of shame was the way of the Lord, I'm thinking, oh no, oh no, these crazies. Uh, 
But instead, his statement was and is a key to getting to the truth of our being. What he was saying and meant, you just had to read a lot more of what he was writing and read Father Zacharias's commentaries on Sophronius, um, was that healthy shame uh, is a gateway to humility. Uh, it is the ability, Father Zacharias says that humility is the ability to bear our shame in the presence of God. Imagine if we go back to Adam and Eve. Um, Adam and Eve hears God and they run to him and say, we've done a terrible thing. And also we've noticed we're naked and we feel terrible about it and I want to hide. And it just, you know, stands this way before God. I mean, that's not how the story went. And that's not, you know, and so I'm asking you to imagine something that's not real uh, because what happens is what's real. But this is this thing in our life that we enact as we find ourselves coming to confession. I did this thing and the priest isn't out there looking for you and going, hey, did you do that again? You know? Instead, you come and you might find it surprising over a few years that you think, gosh, I've confessed that at least 20 times to Father whoever. You know, Father Daniel, Father Stephen, to whatever. I've confessed that 20 times. And he doesn't seem any more reactive to it now than he did the first time I said it. Just no, no reaction. Why? Well, first off, it's because it's considered a sin for a priest to judge. If anything, he might offer advice on something that you would find helpful but should not suddenly be condemning you. He, he, now, priests aren't always well-trained, and sometimes they get into that, and that's just, it, it, does, it can really cloud the whole issue. But in teaching the young, when Father Zacharias was first uh, blessed to hear confessions as a priest monk at the monastery, uh, St. Sophroni told him, he said, teach them, especially the younger ones, when they come to you, teach them to bear a little shame. And I would emphasize on this the word little. Not a lot, but a little. And he didn't say, uh, shame them a little. He didn't say that. He said, teach them to bear a little shame. And so that's something to kind of wrestle with. For me, when I was starting out hearing confessions, from cat, you know, a kid at seven or eight, they come to their first confession. And, you know, I never did a lot of things teaching them much about it. Uh, my first thing I wanted to teach them was that talking to the priest is okay. And it's comfortable. And so oftentimes I would say to a parent, we'll teach them about confession a little later. You know, mostly I just want them to sit here and talk with me. And I have to build a friendship with them. I, I, they need for this to be safe. Because it'd just be scary to go sit down next to Santa Claus and tell him all the stuff you did wrong. You know, um, Lord have mercy. But, you know, so we teach that it's safe. So teach them to bear a little shame. Uh, Seraphim Aldia, Father Seraphim Aldia, the founder of the monastery on Mole Island, has written and said that his Romanian confessor told him, said, when you come to confession, be sure to tell me something that you think will make me think less of you. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like, all the things I don't want to do, but those are good confessions, you know. Uh, my experience with such advice, as I practice it making my own confession, is that uh, it's an exercise in vulnerability, a sort of deeper vulnerability. It's like contrary to my instincts. My instincts are not to tell you this stuff. Uh, although I've told enough stories about myself over the years, including ones you've heard today that I'm 
pretty over it. So all, I can, all you, you, the conclusions you should draw is that my confessions must be really awful if I can tell you guys these sorts of things. So, and they are. Uh, but confession is like standing naked before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, there's very little defense, and most of us do have this defensive instinct in confession. I've noticed we'll add qualifiers in our confession, things like, I'm getting better. I have actually corrected people in a confession and say, don't tell me you're getting better. It doesn't matter how you're getting. It's just not, it's not the point. This is not, I'm, you're not going to get a report card for this. You know, you know, send it home to your parents. You know, he's getting better. <laughs> no, I'm not getting better. Or lately, I, da, 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 that's a good one, that's common. Or sometimes I find myself like, oh, <laughs> how did I do that? Uh, and so these are, these are little ways we have of pulling the punch. So that I, I, they are fig leaves is what this is. I'm standing here naked, but you know, lately I have found these fig leaves to be pretty darn useful. You know? <laughs> and um, you know, so um, the truth is, is that your priest confessor will not view you negatively because he's a sinner just like you are and will rarely hear you say anything that he hasn't done. You know, you've got to get pretty creative in thought, word, or deed somehow up there. Um, humility, that is bearing a little shame, has no excuses. It pulls no punches. I like the fact that St. Sophronius said, teach them to bear a little shame. It may be that we can only practice this a very little. It hurts and it's scary. It's scary. Uh, what I can say is, uh, and I, I mean, I'll add it in this paragraph, it's the case that if toxic shame is present, and it's not been identified and healed to some extent, almost any level of shame can feel unbearable. Okay, because even healthy shame will trigger the toxic feelings. And when that's not been addressed, and it may be, I mean, there were things, I said I got healed from anxiety uh, and panic disorder when I was 58. Uh, some of you were part of St. Anne's back in those days, uh, the year I turned 58 which is 10 or 11 or 12 years ago now, um, I went in the hospital again, only this time dealing with the right things and naming the right things. But there were things in my life that I took a confession and that I was able to say and see uh, things from childhood and abuses and various things that went on that I'd never mentioned in confession, partly because they weren't my fault. And so I thought, who needs to mention that? What my fault? You know, I don't care if it's made me crazy. You know, in a lot of ways, and driven my life is not my fault. Uh, but I dealt with it in another context, and eventually took it to confession. But I mean, I've been making confession since I was twenty or so years old. And here I was, fifty-eight, and only getting around to talking about the things that were really breaking me. You know. You can't always do that on a Saturday night, you know, as you're doing a, a short confession dealing with a kind of recent problems that way. Those kinds of things, sometimes longer sessions. Some kinds of toxic shame need more treatment than that. I mean, I've oftentimes over the past decade, you know, had times when I would just pour my guts out with a, uh, with a therapist and pay him for an hour to listen to me. 
as I go digging around in my muck, you know, and going it out there, and I've got someone I trust who has good insight. I'm not expecting sacraments from them. I'm not even expecting great insight, although a little insight occasionally is helpful. But after I've finished with it, I think, oh, now I know how to, how to, now I'll take that to Father Daniel. I, he's my confessor now, too. I'll just take that to Father Daniel and follow it along with my other things. He doesn't get the hour's worth. He doesn't need to hear the hour's worth. I can pay somebody to do that. <laughs> but I give him the tip of the iceberg, which by then is, is, is all that I need sacramentally. But, you know, part of it is just the exercise. And it's hard to find safe places to talk about shame, to talk about especially the toxic stuff. You know, it's hard to find a place safe enough. Not always does, does the person you're married to feel that safe. You know, we can have uh, thoughts and ideations and stuff that go on in our life that it won't do the person you're married to any good to hear it. In fact, it would probably only damage them. Somebody needs to hear it, though. Uh, sometimes, somewhere, somehow or another. And, uh, but um, it allows us, I mean, I have found over the last 10 years, progressively, as I'm cleaning my mirror, um, I mean, I still get things will still set me off or, you know, trigger shame for me. One little thing or another, something someone says or how someone says it or other kinds of things that way. I have a conversation with my older brother and that'll just trigger the daylights out of me or something. And, uh, my older brother, after my parents died, said, you know, they always loved you best. I held the thing to say. So, but, you know, I told him, I said, you always loved me best too. I said, and I'm the one in therapy. <laughs> it don't make you crazy. I said, you have no idea what that does to somebody. Uh, the expectations and the stuff that's piled on you that way, you know, to uh, be expected to mediate in your house in a fight between your parents and you're seven or eight years old, it'll make you crazy. I've said it'll either make you crazy or make you a priest or to make you a crazy priest. And, uh, and I'm living proof. But humility, this ability to sit with the shame. When I met with Father Zacharias in Essex, he told, he told me about sort of identifying the shame and just bringing it into the presence of Christ, sitting with it, not running from it, not changing it, not turning it into anger, not turning it into sadness, not making an excuse, anything, just identifying and sitting with it, very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, and saying, oh God, comfort me. I write about this in the book. The Psalms say, uh, I have comforted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Because there's some wounded little critter inside you who is about three years old or so and is weaned and needs to know and did not learn how to comfort but instead learned how to put on their armor and try to protect themselves but instead needs to be able to, to bear uh, their soul in the presence of God. And that's something I've done oh more than once a day uh, over the last uh, number of years. And it helps. Uh, it doesn't, you know, I don't suddenly think of myself as some great mountain of humility, because uh, I'm not. Uh, it's just I'm able to do some things that I didn't, that I could not have done before. It's important to me, to all of us, to understand um, Christ's role in all of this. On the cross, 
Christ put himself in the situation of being shamed. The language of Holy Week in the Orthodox Church is not the language of pain. It doesn't talk about how much we hurt him. The language is actually all about the mocking and the spitting. That's what it focuses on, is the shame. It says in Isaiah, uh, he turned not his face from the spitting and the shame. And this is, so Christ on the cross comes down and puts himself on our side of the shame. Okay? He's on our side of the shame. He's not in the situation of shaming us, but he's in the situation of receiving the shame. So that we bring our shame into the presence of Christ, he does the same thing. He doesn't sit outside our shame judging us. He steps onto our side of the shame and sits with us in it. He makes it his own. You felt that, he feels that. Uh, St. Sophroni said, so long as there's a single soul left in Hades, Christ is there with it. That's a very theological way of saying the same thing. He puts himself on our side of the shame. He knows what it is. He bears it. Boy, you see this Jesus, 8th chapter of John, the woman caught in the act of adultery, not just caught, I mean, she's not just been found out through a detective. <laughs> they caught her in the act, it says. Which is, and then they drag her out. I've always thought maybe she's like hot, sweaty, and naked. You know, they just drag her out into the streets because that's how they would have liked it the most. Because they sit out there and judge her as if that's what they're doing. Uh, they're all thinking, whatever. You know, and Jesus finally, you know, he's without sin. Let him cast the first stone. And he gets them there, you know. And he's, you know, he's doing, he's making them get on her side of the shame. You hear that? How he's doing that? If you are without sin, Throw the first stone. Jesus is for, is making them stand with her. Stand with her on her side of the shame. And he says to them, they leave. He says to her, where are those who condemn you? And she said, they've gone. He said, well, then neither do I. He puts himself with her on her side. He says, go and sin no more. Which I'll bet she had already thought about, had that one made up in her mind already. If I get through this alive, I'll never do that again. You know? uh, that's, that's not the issue. He doesn't say that to shame her. Uh, he's not saying, don't you ever do that again. It's not that way. Just go and sin no more. Like, he saved her by stepping onto her side of the shame. So you and I, when we're experiencing these things, that's sort of my conclusion here today. We're experiencing this, feeling alienated from myself, alienated from God, alienated from others around me. Don't just run it high. Recognize it. Name it. Sit with it. And say, oh God, comfort me. Come to me. Come to me on, on my side of the shame. And sit with me. He, won't make it, he, he will not make himself a stranger, but he came for this purpose. To know this. And Paul says that in Philippians 2, that he became, he became a servant and became obedient to death. He said, Even death on the cross, which means the death on the cross, that's how they punish slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, crucifixion's a slave death. He put himself in the lowest place, the place with criminals and slaves, and, and the least of all, he made himself that way so that when we find ourselves in, when you're doing shame, you feel like the least of all. That's, you, you've got all kinds of language to call yourself least. You know? And uh, we say that language on Sunday when we're gonna take communion, uh, but it may not be quite the time for that, but this is, this is humility. 
Fathers, by the way, tell us that humility is the queen of the virtues. Shame may be the master of emotion, but humility, our ability to bear this with God, in, in the presence of God, is the queen of virtues. It's the font of all, all the virtues flow from. You know? And so it's, it's interesting how connected these are. So that's why I wrote a book. Because <laughs> I was finding that to be true in my life, and I thought it sure would be good to share it with others. 